and welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. I'm Andrew Nichols. And today on the show, we are talking about the history of social housing. Now, this is a banger, not just because we're going to go back into history, but we're going to put the current state of housing, both in the private and the social market, we're going to put it into context. Now, here's the thing, team. Often we can get a bit of recency bias. Now, what I mean by that is we think that things are worse than they have ever been before. What was it called? Recency bias. I haven't heard that before. So recency bias is where, because you've only been alive for, in your instance, 37 years, you only look at the data based on what you have experienced. Mm -hmm. So if you were born and were cognizant, you were actually taking things into your life, because of course when you're five, you don't remember anything like that. If you were, were five when you were 1991, that was the peak of home ownership in New Zealand. So you might think that's the baseline. Yes. That's what it was in the past. Yes, yes. But yes, actually, yes. as we're going to find out, the proportion of New Zealanders that owned their own home back in the 1950s was worse than it is today. So you might think, oh gosh, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But in actual fact, when you look at the long-term history, things perhaps aren't so bad. Now, we are going to start by going back to the year 1905, 1905, because that is where social housing started in New Zealand. And that's where Richard Seddon's government, you might remember him as the guy who opposed Kate Shepard and didn't want to give women the vote, he started the first Social Housing Act. That was the Workers' Housing Act. And didn't take off. It was a bit of a Kiwi build policy. Not that many state houses ended up actually getting built. And it's interesting that social housing in New Zealand didn't really take off until... 1937. That's right. That was your cue to come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was reading something. So we've got a bit of a case study. So in 1937, when the social housing boom started... David and Mary McGregor were the first people to move into a social house and their property was at 12 Fife Lane in Miramar, which is a great location in Wellington. He was a tram driver and he was earning £4, 7 shillings and 9 pence. Yeah, I have to stop and think about these things because they use a D for the pence and we actually had to refer to our producer Dave on the numbers here because I didn't even realise that we used the pound system in New Zealand. Did you know that? Of course I knew that. Of course you did, you're a nerd. Uh, anyway, he paid the state one pound, ten shillings and three pence in rent, which was just over a third of his pay every week. So when we talk about people paying, you know, what do we pay now about about a third of your pay to rent? It's pretty much the same. Now, what's really interesting here as well, Andrew, is that property, 12 Fife Lane, the McGregors ended up purchasing that, which we're going to get into in a moment, but it is now still... A state house. It has become a state house again. Really? Now, what's interesting is that we might have rosy views about the past, but it wasn't all roses with social housing, even after we had that boom after the first Labour government, which was headed by Michael Joseph Savage. Once all of the boys came back over from the war, they all came back, it was very, very difficult to get housing in New Zealand. Demand was nearly always outstripping supply. So all of the soldiers came back and they were flooding the market and many people were unable to secure a home of their own. In fact, thousands of people were forced to rent rooms in like squalid boarding houses or move in with relatives and friends, have severe overcrowding. And in that case, it placed some pretty severe strains on personal relationships. 
Now, let me ask you this, Andrew. At that time, how many people were on the social housing register? How many people were waiting for a social house? At the time, it was 45,000. Now, that compares to about 25,000 today. So even though the number we've said has gone up significantly under this current government, it's not anywhere near as bad as it was back then. Now, of course, we're not saying that, oh, all good, let's just add an extra 20,000 people to the state housing register. We're just trying to put that in context that housing shortages happen at different times throughout history. And although we're not suggesting that everything's all fine and dandy, it's not that the past has always been fine and dandy as well. So let's talk about the program introduced to sell these houses to tenants. And actually, I was talking off here to Ed and David about this. I actually met a guy when I was looking at buying an earthquake damaged property in Christchurch, and he was one of 20 units in a block. They were all state houses, but his one was privately owned because he'd taken this kind of program up much later than this. But this was originally introduced by National in the 1950s, and they allowed tenants to purchase the properties that they lived in. And based on New Zealand's history, National governments have favoured the selling of state houses to tenants, whereas Labor governments have tended to hold on to those properties and continue to rent them out. Now, the payment terms, the guy I met, Warren, who had taken up his offer, basically if if you paid your rent on time every time for a number of years, they used a proportion of that towards your deposit. So I think he did it with a really low deposit. But at this time in the 1950s, it was a 5% deposit, a 40-year loan term, and a 3% interest rate. And that was about the time when you rate were sort of 5% for fixed, 7% for floating. God, that's a deal. Imagine if they did that right now. You'd have so many social housing tenants if they were able to get that 5% deposit together. I mean, you'd just go for it, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And that's They'd give the, it away. And that's what the McGregors did. So they actually ended up buying the house, which is what's interesting that it's gone back to the state housing market again. Yeah, what actually happened there was these are the people who originally moved into the house in 1937. So they end up buying it off the state. So 20 years later. Yeah, they die. Their son inherits it, sells it back to the state. Probably oh. made an enormous capital gain. Good well, on him. Did. Now, what's interesting was at the time, 38.5%, 38.5% of New Zealand's population rented, 38.5% of households rented. Today, it's 3% lower, 35.5%. Now, again, the key thing I just want to point out here is although it can feel like home ownership rates are the lowest that they've ever been, that's actually not the case. More people were renting back in the 1950s than are today. Again, doesn't mean that we wouldn't like to see that number perhaps go in one direction or the other, but it's just to put it in the long-term context. Now, what happened in 1991 with social housing? Oh, we had the mother of all budgets introduced by Ruth Dyson. and She's the the lady that made the uh, vacuum cleaners, right? (laughs) No good? Well, some people certainly would have said she sucked because that is the time in 1991 where in order to reduce the state's role, the government's role in the provision of housing, they took away income subsidisation. So back then, you would pay perhaps a third of your take-home pay towards your rent. So if tenants got paid, say, $1,000 a week, a third of that would head off to the government in terms of their rent. Well, what the national government ended up doing through this policy was made the market rent. So it didn't matter what you earned. The price of the house was the price of the house was the price that somebody else would pay. So Is that on the open market? Yeah. So if the open market was, say, $200 at the time, and in fact, it was probably much, much less, 
then that's what you would pay because that's what the house was worth. Now, if somebody couldn't afford that, that's where they would then provide them an accommodation supplement. Yes. But the idea was to make it even between the state market yes. and the private market because yes. then if you had somebody who was relatively low paid who just happened to be in the private market, wasn't able to get a state house, then they were disadvantaged compared to people who were renting social houses. Now, that actually ended up being reversed in 1999, but it's a significant part of the economic history of social housing here in New Zealand. What's even more interesting than that is not necessarily how the politics of social housing has changed, but how the houses themselves have changed over time, which is what I want you to cover now. So up till 1970s, the typical social housing tenant was a nuclear family, so two parents and a few children. So most of the state housing properties were two or three bedrooms so that could accommodate a family of up to five. But then as time went on, they needed five bedroom and six bedroom houses. And instead of building them, the government just started buying older properties and renting them out just because it was a quicker fix rather than a Kiwi build type of scenario where you had to wait for these things to be built. After the 1990s, the average social housing tenant was a single parent and maybe children. Today, more social housing is needed for single people. That's 100% right. In fact, I think last time I read the numbers, about a three quarters or just over three quarters of people either need a one bedroom house or a two bedroom house. The household sizes are much, much smaller today than they were previously. And because of that, we need to see the type of housing that's being built for the social housing register to start to adapt and change. Now, you might be wondering, why are these guys telling me about the history of social housing and how does that fit into my ability to purchase my first home or invest in property? Look, there are two key principles that I want you to take away from this. The first thing is, I hear a lot of people say to me, well, how can house prices keep going up? How can rents continue going up perpetually. There's got to be an actual limit. Now, here's the thing. I know that everything can seem bad. It can feel like home ownership has never been worse, that tenants have never paid so much of their income towards housing, that overcrowding is a problem that has only just occurred. But the key thing to remember is that a lot of the problems that we face have always been there. That doesn't mean we don't want to try and solve them. It doesn't mean that we don't try our best efforts to decrease that social housing register and thank goodness we don't have as many people as we did back in the 1950s. But if you're thinking that, well, all of these things that seem so bad mean the dance is going to stop at some point, house prices aren't going to continue to grow up and rents will eventually stagnate, that's not necessarily the case. And to, once we start looking at real history back to 1905 to see what life was actually like, we suddenly realised that, you know what, maybe the good old days weren't so good after all. Perhaps things are just as bad today as they always have been. And so what has occurred over the last 50 years may or may not continue into the future. The second thing that I really want you to take away as well is that housing should and has adapted to the needs of the people who consume it. So what I mean by that is we have seen, as Andrew pointed out in his last comment, the types of people who need social housing change. Smaller fewer people within it, eventually down to only having one person within the household as opposed to perhaps six or five. And I actually think that is a really good example of where we see housing starting to adapt now. So for instance, I see a lot of people say, well, why would I buy a two-bedroom property when three bedrooms are the most popular? Well, they might be the most popular today, but as society adapts and we have smaller and smaller households, we don't need as much space. So perhaps it's okay if you purchase an investment property that doesn't exactly look like what perhaps your grandparents bought back in the 1950s. 
So two really good takeaways there. The first is perhaps today isn't the worst it's ever been. And second of all, that housing should adapt over time as people who need that housing should change. Let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Property Academy podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you've got an idea for a podcast episode, then either message us on Instagram, we are at opas underscore partners, or just send us a text. Our number is 5522. If you whip out your phone and send us a message, it'll come through to me. listening to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the property market. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>